so people think that overeating fixes the emotions or lets them escape from the emotions. It's only a very temporary escape. And in the long run, you might find that you're less depressed or less anxious if you're not overeating. And we're not really just numbing out. We're looking to get high with food. All of these things taken together suggest that you got to take control over this erroneous survival drive and redirect it towards something it's supposed to have. Welcome to the Rebel Health Coach Podcast with Tom Underwood. Armed with truth and knowledge, your journey to a healthy lifestyle can be obtained. Preventative wellness, quality nourishment, and daily fitness routines dramatically improve your outlook on life as a whole. And you'll find the support and info you need to accomplish a healthier lifestyle here. Together, we can empower each other along our journey to an amazing you. Welcome to episode number 155 of the Rebel Health Coach Podcast. Merry Christmas to everyone. Thank you for joining me today during this holiday season. I hope you have a great holiday season and I hope you have an outstanding New Year's Eve. Welcome to 2023. Today's guest is Glenn Livingston. He is a psychologist and author of the book, Never binge again. He'll share how you can become an alpha wolf that can defeat what he calls your inner pig. Dr. Glenn Livingston is a veteran psychologist and longtime CEO of a multi million dollar consulting firm that has serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. Disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer, overweight and or food-obsessed individuals, Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work with his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. Most important, however, was his own personal journey out of obesity and food prison to a normal healthy weight and much more lighthearted relationship with food. In this episode, Dr. Livingston teaches why binge eating and overeating are such a common problem and how there are two factors that combine to form the perfect storm in our culture and have created a horrendously difficult mountain to climb for anyone who wants to stop overeating. I hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Livingston and please take a minute to rate and review my show. It helps promote my show, and it means the world to me. Thank you, and enjoy this episode. Merry Christmas. Dr. Glenn Livingston, welcome to the Rebel Health Coach podcast this afternoon. How are you? I am excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this all week. I have as well. I am grateful you took the time to have your peeps reach out to me to come on and talk about this important topic that we're going to discuss today about binge eating. How could I say no? Right. <laughs> and I'm glad, I'm very grateful you took the time to be here today. Yeah. Because I have a weird schedule for podcasters and some people don't like my schedule, so I don't get as many guests as I would like, but it's okay. Then I, I just move forward. Well, I have uh, weird things to say, so it'll be a good I match. know, I, I, you know, but we're going to hit a touch base on your book because that was, this book is something that I, everybody must read. 
And why not? The book is offered free. So, and we'll tell them how to get that today. So, mm-hmm. before we dive into your book, Never Binge Again, I'd like to find out from my guests, first of all, what was your catalyst or your pain to purpose into this wellness room, wellness realm? And you have a quite an interesting story. Yeah, I, I could talk for an hour and a half just from that one question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, well, first of all, to let the listeners know a little bit, you were the CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm that serviced the Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. This so, is true. Let's go. Let's start with. So, what was your pain to purpose into this wellness world? Well, you know, I, I'm not just a doctor that decided to work with overeaters. I was a I had a very serious problem myself. When I was 16, 17 years old, I figured out that if I worked out a few hours a day, because I'm I'm six four and I'm modestly muscular, just genetically I'm lucky. Um, I could eat whatever I wanted to. I mean, if you stopped at the Woodbury Country Deli and they were out of pizza and pop tarts, the odds are I was there before you. Um, you know, like five, six thousand calories a day, boxes of muffins, whole pizzas, boxes of chocolate bars, boxes of donuts. It was it was insane. And at the time, it wasn't really a problem. I mean, I, I was wasting a lot of time eating and going to the bathroom and everything, but um, I wasn't fat at the time. I, um, I didn't start to feel the pain from it until I was 22, 23 years old. And I was um, commuting a few hours each way to go to graduate school and to see patients and 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 I, I just barely had time to work out for an hour a week, much less two hours a day. Uh, but I found that the food still had a hold on me. It it kind of had a life of its own. And um, my metabolism was slowing down. And I suppose the worst part of it wasn't really the weight that I was gaining. And I was gaining weight. But the worst part was that I couldn't think straight while I was sitting with my patients. If you know anything about psychology, it's it's not really an intellectual profession. I mean, it is. You got to know a bunch of stuff, but it's not like people come in and present the jigsaw puzzle of their life. You say, rotate this piece here, this piece is missing. And they say, thanks, doc. I'll get right on that. You got to convince them to love and trust you enough so that they're willing to think new thoughts and you know leave their comfort zone. And... I couldn't be present. I, I, I couldn't lend them my soul in the way you really have to do to be a stellar psychologist. And that was the most important thing to me. I was brought up in a family of psychologists and my aunts, my uncles, my cousins. Um, and so coming from a family of psychologists, I took a traditional psychological route. I figured I must have a hole in my heart. And if I could fix that metaphorical hole in my heart, then I uh, wouldn't keep trying to fill a hole in my stomach. And so I, I went to the best psychologists and psychiatrists, and I went to Overdue's Anonymous. I took a very deep, soulful, spiritual look at myself. And I learned an awful lot, and I don't regret it because I think it made me the person I am today in many ways. But um, everybody I'd go to, I'd get a little better and a lot worse, a little better and a lot worse with the binge eating. Um, and I didn't even identify it as binge eating back then. I just thought it was that I liked to eat. <laughs> I was an overeater, right? Um, 
And through all this time, I had a dual career. My ex-wife was married for 28 years. And so at the time, we were married and she was a focus group moderator. She traveled for business. And so I only really saw her on the weekend for the most part. And I had a lot of time in my hand. And so I started consulting for, um, you know, big food companies and big pharma companies. And I was on the wrong side of the war. I was in advertising research and kind of like a hidden persuader, helping sell sugar to kids and, um, you know, fat and salt and oil and all types of things that don't really belong in people's bodies. And, um, you know, I feel guilty about it. I'm trying to make up for it now, but that's what I did. And um, made an awful lot of money doing it. But what, um, what I saw that impacted my journey was that there were um, billions, billions of dollars being thrown at, you know, paying these rocket science engineer hyperpalatable concentrations of food-like substances, starch and sugar and oil and salt and excitotoxins. And it was all geared to hit the bliss point in the reptilian brain without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And when you do that, the result is addiction. When you do that, the result is you want more and more and more. And every time you're looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container, there's some fat cat in a white suit and a mustache just laughing all the way to the bank, right? And, and, and so the reason that was important in my journey was that it showed me eventually that there's a very powerful external force that has nothing to do with a hole in my heart. It's nothing to do with my personal psychology. That I was in a bad marriage or that, you know, some struggles when I was growing up with my mom or my dad or whatever. This is a very external force targeting the reptilian brain, which doesn't know love, by the way. The reptilian brain looks at something in the environment and it says, do I eat it, do I meet it, or do I kill it? Um, it's the higher brain that says, wait a minute before you eat, meat, or kill that thing. What impact does that have in your uh, family and the people that you love and your tribe? And you know, then it's the neocortex all the way on top that says, what about your long-term goals? What about your weight loss and fitness goals? What about your uh, health? What about the person you're trying to be in the world? And I looked at the advertising industry and I said, the advertising industry is um, really good at making us believe that you know, this stuff is necessary for our survival. Um, and you put it all together and I said, this is, um, this is not really an emotional problem. This is not an emotional problem. This, this is a problem of um, the addiction of the lizard brain to artificial concentrations of pleasure that nature didn't prepare us for. And I'm going to need a more aggressive defense. Maybe I need something that's more like uh, being the alpha wolf of my own mind. So rather than saying, oh, poor baby, you know, uh, you're you're feeling unloved, you're feeling depressed, you need to pay attention to your emotional well-being more. Maybe it was more like what I would do with my bladder or or my testicles. Like, you know, my my bladder could say, you really got to pee right now. but I, I, I would say, look, I'm in the middle of an interview with Tom and I'll pee later. 
you know, I've, I've got to finish this interview. I've got other responsibilities. My testicles, my testicles could say that woman is really gorgeous on the street. You should go kiss her right now. And my, my higher brain would say, I'm sorry, but I don't live my life according to my testicles. I'm, I'm the one in control, not you. You'll have to, you know, there, there are ways in time. I have a girlfriend now, so I wouldn't do that anyway. <laughs> but, 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 um, you know what I mean? And, and so, and so, um, are we starting to get suspicious that the love your inner wounded child um, approach to fixing overeating wasn't going to work um, and that I was going to need something more aggressive? The final thing that happened that really changed my approach was when um, I did this 40,000 person study over the course of many years when clicks were cheap on the internet. And I asked people who were searching for stress solutions what their stress foods were. What foods couldn't they stop eating once they started if they were stressed? And I found some interesting patterns. I found out that people who struggled with chocolate like me, I usually started with chocolate, whatever my binges were. We tended to be lonely or brokenhearted or a little depressed. And people who struggled with uh, soft, chewy, starchy things like pizza or bread or bagels, they tended to be um, stressed at home. And people who struggled with chips and pretzels and like crunchy, salty things, they tended to be stressed at work. And I called my mom. This was a real pivotal moment for me. I called my mom, who was in my early 40s. Um, and I said, Mom, I am just trying to figure out why do people like you and I, who are, who are struggling with chocolate, why do we rent the chocolate when we feel depressed or lonely? You know, it's a very clear finding. Can you tell me anything about my upbringing that would have set that pattern up? And she looks at me, she says, Glenn, I'm so, this is on Skype. She said, I'm so sorry, honey. And I said, mom, it's okay. You know, it's 40 years ago. I just, I'm just trying to figure it out. I love you. I forgive you, whatever it was. She said, I'm so sorry. But when you were one year old in 1965, your dad was a captain in the army and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And we were trying to get pregnant with your sister. And I was terrified. Thought I was going to be an army widow. And when at the same time, my father, your grandfather, had just gotten out of prison. And I had no idea he was guilty, and he was. He had disappeared for a couple of years. And I was horribly depressed, and my whole world had come apart. And the upshot of all this was that when you would come running to me for love or to play or just to have some fun or to be fed some healthy food, I didn't have it in me to do it for you all the time. As a matter of fact, most of the time I was sitting and staring at the wall. So I got a big bottle of chocolate syrup, chocolate Bosco syrup, and I put it in a refrigerator on the floor. And I'd say, Glenn, go get your Bosco. And you go crawling over to the refrigerator. You'd take out the bottle, you'd open the cap, and you'd suck on the syrup, and you'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. Right? And so you'd think that if this was an emotional issue, that that would be the cure. Right? If it, if it worked like it does in the movies, then... Mom and I would have a big hug and a big cry, and I would never have trouble with chocolate again. Well, Tom, it, it turns out that was a good conversation to have. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about my mom. I stopped hating myself as much. We, you know, we did have a forgiving talk, and it was a good conversation. But my chocolate problem got even worse at that point because it was like this thing inside of me kind of grabbed onto the idea and said, you know what, Glenn, you're right. Our mama didn't love us enough and she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in our heart 
And until we can find the love of our life and get out of this marriage, we're going to have to go right on binging on chocolate. Let's go get some more right now. Yippee, let's do it. And, um, and, and that changed my thinking. I started to think, maybe, maybe I don't have to put out this emotional fire. Maybe the problem is that the fireplace has holes in it. If you think about it, a fire in the living room in a well-contained fireplace is an asset, not a liability, right? It's something that people gather around and they make memories and they hug and they cry and they laugh and they tell stories. It's only if there's a hole in the fireplace that an ash can get out and burn down the house. And I said, so maybe this voice of justification is poking holes in that fireplace. And maybe what I need to do is fix that voice of justification. So I did a really crazy thing at this point. And remember, I was not a, I was not a fat doc, right? I was not, a, not an eating doctor. I actually worked with couples and families. Um, I was just trying to figure this out for myself. And I said, what if I draw a really clear line in the sand so I knew exactly when I was about to eat something that was off my plan. So for example, one of my first rules was I'll never eat chocolate on a weekday again. Well, then if I was in a Starbucks and I heard a little voice in my head that said, um, you, you really, you won't gain any weight if you have a little bit of chocolate. One bite's not going to hurt. You worked out hard enough. It's okay. You can start tomorrow. When I heard that voice in my head, I would say, wait a minute, that's not me. This is a little embarrassing for a sophisticated psychologist with all of my credentials. I said, that's not me. That's my inner pig squealing for pig slop. Chocolate, chocolate is pig slop on a weekday. I never eat chocolate on a weekday. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And as ridiculous as that sounds, that became, um, it was a way of waking up at the moment of impulse and giving me some extra microseconds to make the right decision which I didn't always do right away. Um, I did wake up. I was no longer confused. I didn't think it was this mysterious emotional force inside of me. I just thought, okay, no, my pig is awake. The reptilian brain is awake. Um, and I need a way to disempower that logic. For example, if it says it's just as easy to start tomorrow, I would say, well, no, it's not. Because the principle of neuroplasticity says what wires together, fires together. If I have a craving for chocolate and the thought that I'll just start tomorrow and then I reward that craving today with chocolate, I'm more likely to have both the craving and the thought tomorrow. So I'm more likely to say start tomorrow, tomorrow, and you cycle all the way down. I can only use the present moment to be healthy. Um, and so I don't need pigs up and if I'm animals tell me with. So I would disempower the logic and that would give me an added level of control. There's a lot more to it, but huh. I, it makes sense. Yeah. We all been through a lot these last few years, and even the best of us has succumbed to stress and emotional eating at one point or another. Glenn, let's start with the basics of binge eating. What is the inner pig? Well, the way I define it, it's all of the destructive thoughts that suggest that you're going to break your plan. So if you start with one simple rule and, you know, like, like I'll never go back for seconds or I'll always put my fork down between bites. Then all of a sudden, when you commit to that rule, there's this voice in your head that says, you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. You won't do that in all sorts of different ways. Um, I define that voice as your pick. I believe that it's driven by the reptilian brain gone awry. 
and believe that it's our a survival instinct um, because this tends to occur more when people are tired or they get too hungry or they haven't nutrified themselves or if they've been dieting too hard, they've been over-restricting and you know, the brain is trying to say, you know, we need calories and nutrition for survival. Um, so I believe it's driven by the energy of, of the reptilian brain. Um, I believe that it's driven by the same energy that the fight or flight response is driven by, call it the feast or famine response. Uh, but essentially, it's comprised of all the thoughts, feelings, and images that suggest that you're going to break your best laid plans. That's what the inner pig is. Hmm. Okay. And you don't have to call it a pig. If the word pig bothers you, <laughs> um, you must be saying, why does Tom have this doctor with a pig inside of him on, on the show? If that bothers you, you can call it a food monster or um, your junkyard dog or something like that. Right. But, but it's not an inner wounded child. It's not something you want to love and nurture back to health. Well, I, I want to say this before we go further. I've read other binge eating books in my past. And this book is, uh, it's very well written. It's very good book. And it, it's, 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 it's actually humorous and very, I mean, your writing style is amazing. I think everybody needs to read this book, in my opinion, even if you don't have an inner pig. But it, even, you know, I think it's good on the fact that you hit this, you hit so many good spots in this book. And the first part of it, we're talking about the inner pig and basically loving your inner food demon, you know. So why must we discipline and control our inner food demon in order to get past this binge eating part? Because... By the way, you don't want to love it. You want to discipline and control right. it. Because an alpha wolf, when it's challenged for leadership by another member of the pack, doesn't go, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug. Right? right. It, it growls and it snarls and it asserts its superiority and says, get back in line or I'll kill you. The problem is that this is not the seat of your rationality. This is not the seat of your love. This is not the seat of your humanity. This is like an organ inside of you that is, is there for the purpose of taking care of you in an emergency, but is making a biological error. And that biological error shuts off your rational thinking and says, just hand over the chocolate or nobody gets hurt. And you need something equally as forceful at the moment of temptation to get back into your rational mind. You have to wake up. You have to wake up and assert superiority over this biological reflex. Um, otherwise, it's going to run roughshod over you. My, my opinion, my very strong opinion. But I, I love this part. Loving the lizard brain, your inner pig at the moment of impulse minimizes your ability to control it. Can you, let's, can you dive a little deeper into that for the listeners? Because I think it's, it, this is an important part of overcoming this binge eating well, well, okay. First of all, it is possible that the desire to overeat can be triggered by feeling unloved or feeling um, feeling upset, but it's it's a very small part of the relationship be between emotions and overeating. 
So the relationship between emotions and overeating goes two ways, and then there are other factors at play. For example, suppose you're anxious and having trouble sleeping. A lot of people tell me they can't get to bed without overeating. And they say that overeating takes away the anxiety and lets them go to sleep. Well, it's true that the nervous system has difficulty conducting the emotions when you overload the digestive system with unnecessary tasks. That's, that's true. So there is a kind of numbing impact, an analgesic impact on the emotions of overeating. However, it's also true that overeating reinforces the negative emotions and makes them worse later on. Um, for example, anxiety has a lot of physiological components that we can measure in animals. Your galvanic skin response goes up, your perspiration, your respiration, your heartbeat, your blood pressure. These are all very measurable um, correlates of anxiety. We can't ask an animal if it's anxious, but we can see when they're demonstrating all of those, those uh, correlates. And in studies where the emergence of those physiological reactions is rewarded by sugar, for example, like bab baboons given a sugar reward when they are demonstrating higher blood pressure, those baboons learn to consistently demonstrate higher blood pressure. The, the physiological aspect of the emotion you dislike is reinforced by what I would call pig slop or by you know, hyperpalatable food, um, equally if not more so than the immediate impact of reducing the anxiety that you're trying to get away from. Also. If you ever go to the dentist, do, do they ever say, I'm sorry, I'm out of Novocaine. I'd like to inject you with this bagel or this chocolate bar. They, they, don't, they don't do that because the impact of the bagel or the chocolate bar is not just to numb you out. The impact of the bagel or the chocolate bar is to get you high. Um, these are we didn't have chocolate bars in the Savannah. We didn't have you know, chips and tarts and you know, pasta and pizza. We didn't have all, all those things in this matter. And I'm not saying you can't eat them. Like two thirds of people can work it out to do that in a, in a moderated way. But, but, we, but there's, a, there's a physical high that goes along with that that we're not really programmed to tolerate. And another word for a concentrated physical pleasure that evolution didn't prepare us for is a drug, right? Really, what we're doing is getting high with food. And if, if you stop telling yourself that you are trying to comfort yourself or numb out, what you're really doing is getting high with food, you won't be as eager to keep doing that. You'll, you'll say, I don't really want to be a drug addict. Most people will. And um, you'll be more motivated to get away from it. So people think that overeating fixes the emotions or lets them escape from the emotions. It's only a very temporary escape. And in the long run, you might find that you're less depressed or less anxious if you're not overeating. And we're not really just numbing out. We're looking to get high with food. All of these things taken together suggest that you got to take control over this erroneous survival drive and redirect it towards something it's supposed to have. Okay. So this is, you're kind of, this is like, like being an alcoholic or a drug addict because it's, you're just numbing something. So we're using, instead of using food, you're not, because food is acceptable in society, you're not really 
you, it's not considered a problem. Well, we, we live in a society that tacitly agrees to slowly kill ourselves with food while we all joke around about it, right? Right. Everybody supports each server to eat all this, all this stuff. Um, and, and, you know, and there are benefits, there's some benefits to eating some of this stuff sometimes. Right. Um, but, but food, food is, I mean, if you look at the WHO's latest statistics about, um, you know, heart disease being, I think, more than double than it was 15 years ago. Oh, absolutely. That, yeah, diabetes is up 80%. It's, it's ridiculous. We're, we're killing ourselves. Right. We're, we're, and Chicardo Krishnamurti said that it's no measure of health to be well adapted to a profoundly sick society. And um, I, I, I believe we can't strive to be average or normal if you really want to be healthy. You really have to strive to be superior if you want to be healthy. So, so why do you have to take aggressive control? Why can't you love, love this inner pig? Because it doesn't know love, because it will turn off your rational brain if you give it an inch, because um, you've probably been trying to love it for you know decades if you're listening to this with any type of seriousness, and it's not working, so maybe it's time for another approach. Okay. Let's talk, a, I want to talk a bit we're going to come back to the pig and, and how to fix that. But we really need to, in my opinion, talk about a, the big issue that causes all this, is that, and that's big food companies and the advertising. Mm-hmm. Because they put, they, I, first of all, the big food companies put things in the food that make you want to eat more. Mm-hmm. The advertising companies advertise stuff that while you're sitting there. You go, oh, I need to go get that. So let's talk about that. That's the, in my opinion, is is a bigger question here as far as compulsive eating or overeating or binge eating. Sure. Because, and you know it because you were in the industry. So let's talk, let's talk about that and then we'll fit, finish with the inner pig again. Okay. Can I tell you a story from nature first so you understand what's going on? Absolutely. There is a type of relationship between two fish. It's called a symbiotic relationship where both of them benefit. Big fish and a little fish. Big fish gets stuff stuck in its teeth. The little fish likes to clean the big fish's teeth. When the little fish wants to go have a meal and clean the big fish's teeth. It does this very special dance. The big fish goes into a bit of a trance. This is just an evolutionary um, reaction that's evolved over, you know, all the millennia. And the big fish goes into a trance. It opens its mouth and the little fish goes in, cleans out the food. Big fish is happy. The little fish is happy. Everything's good in the world. Well, it turns out there is a kind of predator fish, a parasitic fish means it's good for the parasite, but not bad for the victim, who has observed and developed a way to imitate the little fish's dance. So it, it gets up in front of the big fish and it does this dance and the big fish goes into a trance and opens its mouth. And then the, the parasitic fish goes in and eats the, eats the big fish's gums and lips. Um, okay, so why is that relevant? I remember having a conversation with the vice president of marketing of a major food wire manufacturer. 
who I can't mention or I'll get sued. And he was leaving the company and kind of hung his head in shame as he told me that the most profitable thing that they figured out was to take the vitamins out of the bar and put the money into the packaging instead. They made the packaging multicolored and vibrant and diverse because in nature, the appearance of the rainbow, multicolored, vibrant, diverse rainbow, um, is indicative, supposed to be indicative, of a multitude of available um, micronutrients, a diversity of micronutrients. That's where we're told to eat the rainbow. Green lettuce and red tomatoes and blueberries and you know purple cabbage, you, you yellow carrots. You make a salad that has the rainbow. You've got a multitude of different micronutrients available, and you're taking care of your nutritional needs, or you know a lot of them. Um, but in this case, they learned to emulate that signal. The food bar manufacturer could emulate that signal, but they took the nutrition out. And I don't mean to just single out the food bar companies because this goes on all across the industry where they're really studying the evolutionary buttons that we're programmed to automatically respond to because we don't have time to think about what's nutrition and what's not nutritious. And you know we have all these automatic responses to save us time and energy, um, but they're taking advantage of that in order to, uh, in order to make a profit, right? Um, that there are things that they put in the food to turn off the uh, the sensors in our, in, I think it's either a small intestine or large intestine that tell us when we're actually full, that tell us when we've had enough additional blood sugar. Or, um, they take advantage of the um, variability reflex. There's a... Um, there's an instinct to keep eating if something tastes a little bit different than the last thing that you had, because you might be finding another source. We're programmed to respond to novel stimuli, or you might be finding a diversity of micronutrients. And so when a, I learned this from one of my clients, when a, when a manufacturer is making chips, they don't flavor them on a unitary assembly belt. They flavor them on let's say a half a dozen different assembly belts with very slight variations in, in taste so that you keep eating. So that you, you, your evolutionary system thinks that it's found something different, it's found something different, it's found something different. And they know that people eat more chips if you, if you keep doing that. You know, then look at what they define as a serving and ask yourself how many people actually have you know, the number of chips they'll define as a serving. I mean, you could go on and on and on. but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and, and people think the advertising doesn't affect them, but advertising affects you more when you think it doesn't affect you because your sales resistance is down. And believe me, they would not be spending this kind of money on it if it didn't work. So there you go. I was just taking a minute and thinking about what, what's the hormone that tells us we're full. It's actually a peptide. Is it le- leptin or ghrelin? I forget. I think it's lectin. Off the top of my head, I'm... Leptin. Yeah. Yeah. Leptin. Okay. Let's, what about the, the labeling? Because I mean, people don't read labels as much as they should, but there's sugar is a major trigger. It's because it gives us a, a feeling of happiness. And that's, you know, so they're, plus they're disguising some of the stuff that's in this food, like you said, but it's, it's, it's causing us to 
you know, look at look at McDonald's. I mean, there nothing in their burgers healthy, right? But yet, every day people pack the you know pack the McDonald's to get lunch, you uh-huh. know. And it's it's that well to your point was advertising and you know, and it's just it's it's just absurd that it's causing that people to stop and eat this stuff. Like I remember during COVID, they closed all the good restaurants and open, and, but McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's were still open. It's disturbing, know? and and seventy eight percent of the people that were hospitalized were obese. Exactly. So, you know, I I know you come from that background and I I know that people don't get it, but now they're even labeling food. And I saw this the other day for the first time on a package because I have a tendency to pick up packages at the grocery store just to see what, you know, I'll see somebody with a shopping cart and I'll wonder to myself, well, what's making them buy that food or what's in that food? But now they've added another label to the food genetically modified food. Yeah. And I think that was a new law in 2020 that has to be on packaging that's genetically modified. So, I mean, this is just, it's an it's endless realm of big food stepping in and, and poisoning us. Mm-hmm. It's sad because it's, to your point earlier, that obesity is on the rise, which is why COVID was so rampant. Diabetes is on the rise. Insulin prices are skyrocketing. So it's just a big... What, when you work with a client, what are some of the things you use to help them realize that this is what this, this downward spiral needs to stop? Usually they realize it already. Okay. Usually, usually people come to us when you know they feel like they can't get away with overeating anymore. Um, 95% of our clients are women, by the way. I was... Okay. Really shocked by that. I figured, given the nature of what I was writing about, it was going to be all tough guys. Um, I actually, put, I, <laughs> I, I put a big four men star on the book when I first released it, um, and then I found that all the clients were women, so I took it off. And now we have, um, you know, millions of women asking us, "How do I manage my intake?" But you, usually, people are aware something has to happen already. I mean, look, you know. If you're talking strictly about binge eating, then the incidence is somewhere between two and four percent. And there's a very tight definition of that. And, and there should be so they can research medications and other types of interventions and have a very, very clear diagnostic entity. But what is it? 40% of the population is obese and suffering from maladies because of it. And so I always tell people, they ask me, how do I know if I'm a binge eater? And I said, look, it doesn't really matter. This is this is a methodology. It's a non-medical methodology. It's a you know, educational methodology. Not, it's not invasive in any way. Um, this is a methodology you can use if you overeat beyond your best judgment once a month and you want to stop that. Um, you know, it, it, this does not have to be for someone who is 400 pounds and facing bariatric surgery. Um, you could just recognize that you'd like to have a little more control over your own mind and, you know, you want to be a little less at the mercy of, um, no big food and all the temptations out there. So I don't know if I'm answering your question specifically, but yeah. Yeah. So uh, is ending this over, let's just not get get rid of the word binge eating here because this, 
pertains to people that are just basically overeating. So is ending overeating complicated? It's not. It's, it's really much less complicated than you think it is. Um, so where I, do we start? I tell people to start with one simple rule. Tell them to come up with one simple rule. Most people who are struggling with overeating live like the old nursery rhyme that goes, when she was good, she was very, very good. But when she was bad, she was hard. Okay. Um, they're either trying to be very, 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 very good or they're in effort mode. And so when most people try to be good, they set the bar too high. Like they're going to lose weight quickly. Um, they cut out all this, all this stuff. They're going to go on a you know, fairly low calorie diet. And it usually is not sustainable and it seems to make the problem worse in the long run. So tell people to start with one simple rule. Unless your doctor says you have to lose weight quickly. Uh, start with one simple rule. Like um, ask yourself something that would point you in the right direction, which you could and would do, but it would not be onerous or difficult to sustain. Like I remember this trucker who said, look, I have to eat fast food all day long because I'm on the road all day. But I'll tell you what, I won't go back for seconds. Or there are some people who don't want to make rules that restrict food in any way. So they'll just say, I always put my fork down between bites or I always take a picture of my food before I eat it. That just inserts a pause before you eat and gets people to be a little more mindful. Some people will say, I'll take five deep breaths before I begin a meal. Uh, other people will say, you know, I'll only ever eat pretzels at a major league baseball park. Or some people will say, I start my days with 16 ounces of pure water and a green smoothie. And they don't restrict anything. They just crowd out, they crowd out the bad stuff with good stuff. There, there are a lot of ways to go about it. But the, the bottom line is, what's one simple thing you can do? Can you draw a very clear line on the sand? And then once you draw that, you start listening for your inner pig to tell you why you shouldn't do it or why you won't be able to do it or to undermine your confidence. Um, and that's how you do it. And that there's a procedure you should go through when you hear the pig become active. I can talk more about that if you want to. Right. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So what you want to understand is that let's say you have a rule that says, I, um, I'll never go back for seconds. And then you're sitting at dinner, you're feeling a little bit hungry and like you really have to go back for another plate. Well, what's happening on at least a small level is that your sympathetic nervous system is getting activated. That's, that's the part of our nervous system that revs us up for action. You know, in the extreme, if you were running from a hungry bear, it would be your sympathetic nervous system that got you running. What you want to do is when you recognize that that's active, which you'll recognize because you're starting to think about crossing the line, is you want to activate your parasympathetic nervous system instead. That's the part of you that says it's okay to rest and digest and think and plan. And there are a number of ways you can do that. One of the primary ways we found that works is to breathe out for longer than you're breathing in. So we call them 7-Eleven breaths. I got that from Laurie Hammond. Breathe in for a count of seven and out for a count of 11. You do that a couple of times. You're telling your brain that there's no emergency here. Because look, if you were being chased by a hungry bear, you'd be going, 
trying to get as much oxygen as you could. Right. So it makes sense to your brain that things are okay. There's no urgency. You don't have to say, just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. There's no emergency here. Once you've calmed down a little bit, you know, one or two 7-Eleven breaths, then what you want to do is say, okay, pig, I see you. Why should I break my rule? Why should I break my rule and overeat? And see what the pig says. Whatever it says, you want to write it down. So carry around a pen and paper or write it down on your smartphone. You want to write it down. Writing is an upper brain activity and binging is a lower brain activity. So you're engaging your neocortex in order to be able to write. You're also moving the battleground into one where the intellect is effective. Uh, you know, language is the food of the intellect. You can argue with language. You sometimes can't argue with feelings and images. Um, so you write down what the pig says. So it says, um, you know, uh, um, you've, you always break your silly rules. You failed a thousand times before. There's no way you're going to be able to do this. You might as well go have seconds now. So you write that down and you take another 7-Eleven breath and then you say, well, why is the pig wrong? How is it lying to me? The pig usually wins with a half truth and a bigger lie. So it might be true that I quit a thousand times before, but you can be on a, on a highway for a thousand miles and not take an exit and still have the option to take the next one. And you know the human learning process is a process by which we fall down repeatedly and get up until we stay up. Just think about learning how to walk. Would you tell your kid when they're learning how to walk, look, you've fallen down a thousand times before, you should just stay down? So you write down a refutation. Um, you, you disempower the pig's cancerous logic. And then you ask yourself, why would keeping the pig at bay, why would that make me a happier, better person right now? And maybe it will make me happier because I could lose a couple of pounds and have more energy. Maybe I'm going to feel like I'm the master of my own fate. Like I'm walking the walk, like I'm, you know, in control of my impulses and I'm able to accomplish other things um, because I'm just not giving in to whims and, and emotions. There are all kinds of reasons it might be, but what does it specifically link to, to for you? And when you, when you put that all together, you'll probably feel calmer and less like having the break that the pig wanted you to have. And then you ask yourself, what do I actually need? Is there, um, you know, is there some, uh, maybe I've had too much input during the day. Maybe I've tried to make too many decisions. Willpower is the ability to make good decisions. And so when we stress people's decision-making capacity, they start to lose their willpower. So maybe I need to step out of the rat race for a couple of minutes and go take a walk. Um, Maybe I need a nap. Maybe I need to call a friend. Maybe there's something I actually do need to authentically take care of myself that's behind this desire to break my best laid plans. And that, that's really the process. I mean, you know, there's more to it and there are reasons that people break and there are particular ways people break, but that's the, that's the essence of how you overcome overeating. You work, you work with one rule without worrying about losing weight for you know, a couple of weeks just so you can feel like you're in control again. And then you can start to tweak your rules and add more that will help you to lose weight, but not too much. Flood your body with nutrition at a slight deficit if you want to lose weight. Don't go up more than a pound or so per week. 
um, maybe two at the most if you've got a lot to lose. And um, that's how you do it. That's how you do it, Tom. Okay. That's awesome. Now, we, you talk in the book about the food plan. So before we close out, can we talk about how, how to create... Because everybody diets differently, and, and we're not really talking about a diet here. Because right, every right. diet has, a, in my opinion, most all diets have a downfall. Mm-hmm. So, or a downside. And so basically we're talking about creating a healthy food plan. So how do we, what are, what are your steps for creating a food plan in your book? Well, there are different types of rules you can use. You can use what we call absolute rules, which are nevers or always, like I, like I will never have chocolate again. Or you can create what we call a conditional rule which defines a way of moderating rather than eliminating. So I'll only ever have chocolate on a weekend again, right? Or, or I, I never eat bread except at a restaurant when I, can, when I can have two slices per meal, right? And you probably want to think through what you can have that's unrestricted so that your pig can't argue with you that you're starving. So for example, I can have un, unrestricted, unsauced, vegetables, steamed or raw. Um, and, and then you want to go over the whole plan. You, you want to go ho- over the whole plan to be sure that you can hit all your nutritional needs, like go over to chronometer.com or MyFitnessPal and put in a couple of days worth of food and see if you're hitting all of your nutritional needs or you know, talk to your doctor or talk to a um, licensed dietitian. I, I'm none of those things, by the way. I'm, I'm a psychologist by training, and I offer this as training and education. Um, I I don't I don't have a degree in medicine or, or nutrition. I certainly talk to a lot of nutritionists, and I know a lot about it, but I I'm, don't have a degree. And you know, aim, aim to lose a pound or so per week seems to be the sweet spot. I tell people the fastest fastest way to lose weight is slowly. Um, yeah, and, and then as you're approaching goal weight. Land slowly. Don't, don't, like if you're losing a pound a week, when you get within about 10 or 15 pounds, cut that back to a half pound a week and then a quarter pound and just kind of softly touch down on your goal weight so that there's not this major event where the body suddenly perceives that things are different, that you're going from a famine to a feast. That's how you do it. Okay. That's how, that's how you do it. And you also have a starter template in your book. So let's talk about how people can get a copy of your book. You go to neverbingeagain.com and click on the big red button. You will see the reader bonus list where you can get a free copy in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. When you sign up for that, you'll also get the food plan starter template. So the book is diet agnostic. It doesn't matter if you're low carb or high carb or point counting or calorie counting or vegan or carnivore. As long as you have a reasonable way to flood your body with nutrition at a slight deficit, you can make this work. Um, and we thought through sets of rules that you might consider for different dietary philosophies. We call those starter templates, and you modify them to fit your needs. And then, because I know this is kind of weird, because I know that um, I know that you're all sitting and wondering why Tom <laughs> has this doctor on with a pig inside of him, <laughs> and it sounds harsh. It's it's not harsh. I promise. If you 
listen to some of the sessions we recorded. And this is all free, which I'll give you also when you go to neverbingeagain.com and click the big red button. You will hear how I can take people from feeling despairing and confused and hopeless about ever stopping their overeating to feeling hopeful and enthusiastic and optimistic in, um, in just one session. Neverbingeagain.com, click the big red button. Okay. Now, I, I want to add a couple of things because you and I are both, you were gained almost, the weight. Almost 300, almost yeah. 300 pounds, yeah. And I was 290. And, you know, and I know from being in a, where I'm at now, working in a clinic, we also offer HCG diets, uh, which I really have, a, my conscience has a hard time even selling. Because first of all, if you lose weight fast, you're going to gain it back. Yeah, and more usually. Right. It's plain and simple. I mean, yeah, you can, I can, I can, you can lose 30 pounds in 30 days if you want. But every one of those customers that comes in for an ACG diet gains it back. Mm-hmm. And it's a revolving door of the ACG diet. Just like it's a revolving door for ketogenic diets, a revolving door for any quote diet. And you know that, and I know that. And until I figured that out is when I kept the weight off. Now, I really don't, I never, until I read your book, have I figured out that my inner pig, but it, and I really haven't figured it out since reading your book, but I'm sure it's there because I really don't have time to figure it out. I'll be honest with you. But what I'm saying is the bottom line is, and any quick diet or any of these fad diets, may, until you make a change in your brain and commit to something that's healthy, you're not going to lose weight forever. Right. And, I, you know, there's a lot of controversy. Uh, and there's not really controversy if you look at the long-term epidemiological studies, but there's a lot of argument and debate in the, in the press about what's healthy and what's not. And I always say, look, Forget about whether you should eat meat or not or live on plants. Forget about, um, you know, point counting or calorie counting. Could we just all agree that it's better not to eat processed food? Could we just all agree that the more whole foods that you have, the better off you're going to be? Whether it's natural lean meats or, you know, plants like I do. What, right. Um, you know, could we just all agree on that and stop all the books? Right. Just eat real food. Yeah. That's I say that all all the time. Just eat real food. Yep. If, it, if it's not real, and then there's something else in there that shouldn't be in there, and you shouldn't be eating it. I mean, the odds are, if it has a label on it, you might not want to eat it in the first right. place, right? Exactly. Yeah. Now I do look at. I mean, I do have a tendency to stay away from hormone, and I I do have a tendency to eat when I eat meat, which is usually every day at some point. But it's usually farm raised, or not even farm raised. It's all it's gen- it's not genetically modified. It has no hormones in it. It's hormone free. Yeah, and yeah. It's a little bit spicier, but it's worth it. Your your body's worth it. You're worth it, and you need to realize that 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 extra money that if you don't pay if you don't pay now, you're going to pay later. Yeah, it's more expensive to be sick. Right. Yep, I agree. So before we go, is there anything you'd like to tell the listeners other than what we've told them today? But I'm, if you have any wisdom for the people that are 
struggling with not just binge eating, because binge eating is like a word, and you said there's maybe 10% or 20% binge eating, but overeating, period. Um, It's simpler than it seems. You can kind of put aside all of the emotional conflicts. Not that you shouldn't work on them otherwise, but you don't have to solve all your emotional conflicts to stop overeating. Um, A lot of people are frightened to use these methods because they think that the added discipline is going to take away their freedom. But the truth truth is it gives you more freedom because freedom sits on top of discipline. It's only... Uh, it's only because of the jazz pianist, pianist's study of the scales and the structure of music that they can improvise their soul and come back to the structure when they want to. It's only because of the engineer's precision and discipline that when you turn your steering wheel 30 degrees to the right, that your car turns 30 degrees to the right, empowering you to you know, drive where you want to go and greatly expanding your radius of locomotion. Um, Freedom sits on top of discipline. It's not opposed to it. And th- there was a, um, Jim, Jim Rohn said, a life of freedom is better than a, a life of discipline is better than a life of regret. And Peter McWilliams said, you could have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want. So make a choice. You know, when, when, you, when you choose a rule to adhere to, you're cutting out some possibilities, but you're adding other possibilities. And I'd rather that I made those choices than the food industry made those choices for me. Exactly. Now, I appreciate you taking the time today. I have, I, I really am grateful for you to even write. This book is amazing. And like I said, it's free. So there's no, it, you can't, can't say you can't afford it. Because <laughs> it's free. The, the, yeah. We, we do have paperback and audible versions. There's a charge for it, but the um, right. The Kindle book, the Nook book, the uh, PDF is offering. I download the the Kindle because that's usually where I read on anyway. And then I have the PDF version so I could scribble on it. And uh, it's, a yeah, quick, it's, it's a quick, easy read. A lot of people read it in one night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, it, I did it Sunday and Monday. So mm-hmm. anyway, I appreciate you and I appreciate what you're doing for people and you know we're all in this together and the more people that can you know that like yourself who are just doing something they love to help people is a is a great thing thanks tom this was great hey before i go i asked one question that has nothing to do with our topic today of my guest if glenn had 30 to 45 minutes to just kill or chill what album or artist would you put on to listen to? <laughs> oh, there's a kind of jazz fusion artist called um, John Luke Ponte. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 I, I, I can. Um, Cosmic Messenger, um, Egocentric Molecules, those, those old songs. I, oh, I, used yeah. to, I used to love that. I, I wanted to be a jazz pianist in college. Did so you? I, I, had a, I made a little leeway with it. I kind of got offered a crappy contract when I got my PhD and I decided it was probably more lucrative to be a psychologist and, and, <laughs> and, and I liked it better. So, yeah. How did the, how did the CEO thing come in? I mean, you said a little bit about it. You said that you, you, my, my, my wife at the time was a focus group moderator working with a lot of fortune 100 companies. Okay. And I, I had a, unique background in graduate school. I, I 
was asked to help teach a class called the Multivariate Modeling of Human Behavior. So I, I learned how to do observational research and kind of do statistical computations in the background to figure out what was driving decisions. And my wife at the time um, was specializing in projective techniques and understanding people's emotional attachment to, pro- to products. And she would do these very soulful groups. She's very good at it. Um, she'd do these very soulful groups and come up with these really soulful conclusions. But there were companies that wanted statistics to prove it. And, and you can't just ask people, you know, gee, do you buy the American Express card so that you feel a sense of status because there's social desirability bias and they, they feel like they shouldn't admit to some of those things. And a lot of it's unconscious anyway. So observational inferential research was very much in vogue to validate that work. And that's how I got started with my own clients. And then, um, you know, then I was seeing more of them as they went along and yeah, that's how that came. That's how that came about. I'm glad you're out of that business. Me too. I, I work with some, I work with some good companies too, but the big, big food and big farmer, I was not happy with. No, because they're not, they're only out for their best interest. <laughs> yeah. All right, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. If you give me a copy of this, I'll... I absolutely will. Okay. All right, buddy. Thank you. I'll see you then. All right, bye. Bye. Thank you for joining in today with the Rebel Health Coach, Tom Underwood. And be sure to subscribe to the show so you can catch all the episodes. With desire and commitment, you can implement a lifestyle of wellness and fitness. For the support, encouragement, and tools you need to be successful, visit TomUnderwood.net.